Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a previously unpublished personal letter of Florida author Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings is acquired by the University of Florida. At the outcome of the trial, she was very discouraged and vowed never to write about Florida again. Before Florida counties took over emergency services, hearses often doubled as ambulances. We weren't like doctors, we were that skilled, but we were able to keep somebody living and get them to the doctor. We'll look at three different visions of Florida over the centuries, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Dear Zelma, Well on my way back to the USA after a grand and much-needed holiday, drove a baby Austin on the left-hand side of the road, the English custom, over 2,000 miles. In spite of all the beauty I've seen, Florida is still home. My dear foolish Zelma, the thought of coming back to another long grind of hard work with you refusing to be a friend is very painful to me. Doesn't it strike you as rather a useless state of affairs? It doesn't seem like Alachua County with you looking at me as if you wished I would drop dead. I wonder if it has ever occurred to you that the comment I made to your brother that made you so angry is a true one? and that for your own good, you should stop and think about it instead of being furious at me? That's a portion of a letter written on September 21, 1933, by Florida author Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. The letter was sent to Zelma Kaysen, who was Rawlings' friend but became her nemesis. Kaysen sued Rawlings over how she was depicted in the book Cross Creek. Florence Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida Special Collections, where this letter joins many other documents relating to some of Florida's best-loved writers. My area of um, of expertise and um, uh, curation is in literary manuscripts. Um, the three major authors that we have here at the University of Florida are Marjorie Canan Rawlings, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, John D. McDonald. Uh, um, Those are the big three in terms of Florida literary manuscripts. And um, so I curate those three major collections as well as several um, smaller and developing collections, as well as some historical collections and some uh, environmental collections. Uh, Most relate to at least um, peripherally to Florida history and um, Uh, They're very heavily used collections and very popular collections. Harlem Renaissance writer Zora Neale Hurston is best known for her 1937 novel Their Eyes Were Watching God, as well as her collections of folklore, including Mules and Men. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings won the Pulitzer Prize in 1939 for her novel The Yearling and is also well known for her autobiographical book Cross Creek. 
Suspense novelist John D. MacDonald, who died in 1986, was best known for his Travis McGee series and set many of his books in Florida. In addition to drafts of important works by these and other Florida writers, the special collection at the University of Florida also includes personal papers. Uh, when we say the Marjorie Canan Rawlings papers, that refers to, uh, yes, her, ma her manuscripts, the actual um, typescripts and galley proofs in, um, of her manuscripts and her, her published works, but it also includes a huge bar body of correspondence, for instance, that we have letters um, from and to Marjorie Rawlings and Zora Neale Hurston and John D. MacDonald, um, and those add very much to uh, the research value of the collections. In many cases, letters, correspondence have been published, especially in the case of Rawlings, about 80% or 90% of what we have in our collections has been published um, in some shape or form with um, over the years, and that helps indeed with a lot of the informing researchers and helping them access the materials. Some people imagine archives as places with static collections gathering dust, but they are actually dynamic places where exciting curation is going on. For example, Florence Turcott recently acquired the previously unknown letter of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. As curators of manuscript collections, we're always looking for um, new material, for fresh insights into the lives and, um, and work of our um, particular um, authors or creators of our collections. Um, in, um, in the case of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, I often interact with um, dealers with collectors, with people who knew her or knew of her, and they are able in many cases to add um, material through donation or in some cases through purchase of um, adding to the corpus of the um, collected materials that we have um, to, uh, to enhance the information that we have available to our researchers. Um, in this particular case, there's a letter that was donated to us um, by Billy Townsend, who's from uh, Lakeland, but who grew up in Palatka, and he is the great nephew of Kate Walton, who was the representative for uh, the legal representation for Zelma Kaysen in um, the Cross Creek trial of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Selma Kaysen did not like the way that her friend and neighbor Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings described her in the book Cross Creek. As Florence Turcott explains, the disagreement led to a lengthy court battle where neither woman could really claim victory. Marjorie Rawlings used the real names of uh, her friends and neighbors in her semi-autobiographical book Cross Creek, which was published in 1942. Um, in in this particular case, Zelma Kaysen, who was uh, Marjorie considered a very close friend of hers, um, she sued Marjorie for um, originally for libel, and then um, it, which kind of morphed into uh, an invasion of privacy charge that was um, was uh, um, leveled against Marjorie for the characterization of her Zelma in Cross Creek as an ageless spinster um, who resembles a canary. Uh, she was um, 
diminutive person. She was um, lively, and uh, Marjorie thought that that was a good characterization of her. Um, in addition to the remarks about um, her physical appearance there, and her marital status, there was also reference to her uh, propensity to use profanity, and that um, all of which of these um, allegations uh, Zelma took grave umbrage to. <laughs> so her um, her charges were leveled um, quickly, soon after the book was published, and they engaged in a legal battle, which took um, more than five years to resolve, and which ended in a uh, Florida Supreme Court ruling that um, finding in favor of the plaintiff, in favor of um, Kaysen, um, but awarding damages of $1. Uh, so uh, Rawlings was devastated by this outcome, be not because of the financial burden, but because of the um, the, the lack of this lack of vote of of confidence that was was um, implied by the negative ruling. And of course, Kaysen was disappointed in that she received no um, um, compensation for her trouble. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings had found her voice as a writer by focusing on the rural people and natural environment of Florida. Although the court only required that Rawlings pay $1 in damages, she was so upset by the outcome of the suit that she never wrote about Florida again. At the outcome of the trial, she was very um, discouraged and vowed never to write about Florida again. And in fact, she never did publish anything um, set until she died in 1953, um, there was never anything else published about Florida. She was writing her novel, The Sojourner, which was set in the Midwest uh, at the time. And um, when she died, she had just finished writing The Sojourner. So, so indeed, she made good on her promise not to write about Florida again. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings is one of a handful of authors considered to be the most important in Florida literature. Florence Turcott explains why. Rawlings is a significant figure, I think, in Florida literature because of the um, truthfulness and um, reverence that she sincerely felt um, about her adopted homeland. Um, she came from uh, New York and Rochester, New York, when she first moved here in 1928 with her husband, Charles Rawlings. And um, they were, their intention was to make a home here. And they were both writers. And their first inclination was to buy a grove, to buy a, a, a farm, and to grow citrus. And the intention was that the citrus was going to pay for their livelihood while they got their feet underneath them with writing. Um, this was 1928, of course. Um, the nation was about to enter some serious uh, economic hardship, and um, unfortunately, along with storms, Medi Mediterranean fruit fly and um, freezes, the citrus grove didn't quite turn out the way, it wasn't, didn't turn out as lucrative as she thought it would be for her um, 
for her financial support. However, she did struggle. Um, her marriage ended in 1933, and she was um, left to her own devices um, in the middle of the Great Depression to um, make a living, and uh, she decided to turn her literary attentions to the people that were surrounding her, the Florida crackers, as she put it. Um, she did not use that word in a derogatory fashion. It was a very positive term for her. And she began with, with the encouragement of her editor, Maxwell Perkins, of Charles Scribner's Sons, a extensive career basing her literary imagination and focusing her, her efforts on stories about the Cracker people. She began by publishing a, um, a collection of uh, vignettes called Cracker Chidlings and um, continued with, very successfully along that same vein with a, um, her first novel, which was called South Moon Under, which is based literally on visits and time that she spent living with people um, in the Ocala National Forest, in the big scrub, as she called it, um, and characterized their lives and their struggles in these very compelling stories, which were very successful. Fans of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' work often think of Zelma Kaysen as a villain who ruined Rawlings' life. The newly acquired letter sheds a different light on the relationship between these women. In this letter, written years before Kaysen filed her suit, Rawlings comes across as insensitive, patronizing, and insulting to Kaysen. Rawlings is unapologetic and disregards Kaysen's feelings. Florence Turcott. This letter, uh, which was donated by the great grand, the grandnephew of Kate Walton, um, is significant to the uh, is a significant addition to the Rawlings papers in that it's the only piece of direct correspondence between Zelma Kaysen and Marjorie Rawlings that we have in the archive. So we have a lot of anecdotal and third-hand information, but this is really a primary source document that we have of a communication from uh, Marjorie Rawlings to Zelma Kaysen that sheds light on the nature of their relationship as early as 1933 when this, um, this letter was written. Um, Marjorie claims in Cross Creek that, that she and Zelma were friends and that Zelma was actually, they met on the first day that she and Charles came um, when they moved from Rochester, New York to, um, to Cross Creek. So Zelma was, friendship, her friendship was instrumental in introducing Marjorie to the area, to its people, to the townspeople in Cross Creek. And um, Zelma was an intermediary for Marjorie um, in order to validate her existence as a Yankee intruder and to soften the blow of here's a Yankee per woman, woman writer who is going to tell our story. And that was not an easy sell for people who value their privacy very much. Um, in many ways, it seems like Zelma's goodwill was returned to her in a very un, um, un ingrateful fashion with these with this characterization that she took 
in, um, in Cross Creek as an angry and efficient canary. So um, the letter was handwritten, and it was written um, on board a ship, on board a ship that um, Marjorie was um, returning to Florida after vacationing in England. She was doing research um, for a book that ended up being published as Golden Apples. And the, um, the letter is characterized by it was what Marjorie would have characterized as a gesture of reconciliation. The two women had quarreled, um, and apparently Rawlings had made a disparaging remark about Zelma to Zelma's brother, saying that she had a, quote, vicious little tongue, and Zelma was not speaking to Marjorie at the time. Florence Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida Special Collections, the new home of this letter written in 1933 by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. It was no tale-telling behind your back on my part, merely my answer to Turner's remark that he couldn't understand why Clara had it in for you so. Your vicious little tongue, for which you needed to be spanked, is your worst, your only enemy. Those of us who have loved you and enjoyed you have done so in spite of your habit of saying cruel and unkind things about people. Much of the time the things you say are very clever and amusing. People have probably always laughed at your gift for laying anyone open, but often it is cruel and not amusing. So much of your nature is kind and good and loving. No one has seen more of that than I. I feel badly to think of you spoiling your life and losing friends instead of keeping them, simply through what has come possibly to be a thoughtless habit. The world is far too hard and unhappy a place for any of us to be unkind to one another in speech or deed, and I only hope you will take this letter as an expression of my friendship and affection for you, an interest in your own good instead of considering it an unwanted attack. I mean it in all kindness and hope that when I drop into your house when I get back, you will meet me with your old smile, sharing my desire to be friends. Affectionately, Marjorie. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can watch our original courtroom drama, Ponce de Leon Landed Here, commemorating the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state. If you click on the Join Now button and become a member of the Florida Historical Society, you'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and get our daily posts today in Florida history. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Before Florida counties took over emergency services, hearses often doubled as ambulances. 
Janie Gould has more. Before counties got into the emergency services business, some funeral homes handled rescues. Their hearses doubled as ambulances. In Vero Beach, longtime funeral director Charles Gifford drove to numerous car crashes and crime scenes. He gave first aid and took injured people to the hospital. He also helped women who were giving birth. Yeah, and stopped uh, serious bleeding, gave them oxygen, did the resuscitation. We weren't like doctors, we weren't that skilled, but we were able to keep somebody living and get them to the doctor. You must have seen a lot of things. Oh yeah, accidents, uh, crimes, young children in trouble, just one thing after the other. But one thing that gave you a good feeling was that you were able to help somebody and help save a lot. Were there two of you in a car? A lot of times just one, but the police or sheriff's department or neighbors, anything, would help us put the person in a cot and get them in the car and hook up the oxygen to them. It was such a small town. You must have seen people you knew at accidents and other things. Oh, sometimes you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you go to an accident and you walk out in the middle of the road and you look down and there's one of your friends and they've already lost their lives and you couldn't do anything to help them. That sure made you feel bad. That happened more than once, I bet. Oh, many times. But I'm happy to say that more times in the ambulance, you were able to help somebody. So Cox Funeral Home had, what, maybe two hearses that also served as ambulances? Yes. At that time, we called them combinations because we could take the oxygen and first aid kits and everything out of them and have another rack for a casket, you know, and it saved money. I remember when ambulance calls were $5. That's been a while. Oh, it's been a while when I first started driving ambulances, but what we did for 5 or $10, because of the increased value and the complications, it could run $300, $400 for an ambulance call. Or if you're transported by airplane or helicopter, way more than that. But it's wonderful that that could happen. You must have carried hundreds of people to the hospital. The worst part of it was the young children that were in the car, and weren't driving or anything, but they were there and got injured and it made you feel so bad for them. But then you felt so good when you could help them. Because this was before seat belts were mandatory, before car seats were even thought of. Safety really wasn't what it is today. No. Uh-uh. Lots of canals with few guardrails and wooden bridges. And- right, and uh, dirt roads. And it's raining and Another car came in front of them and they slammed on the brakes and they slid out of the road and down into the canal. People trying to open the doors and can't and they're underwater. It's terrible. Over time, as emergency rescue work became more complex, funeral homes got out of that business. Now, you know, you've got people in the fire department that can do far more than we could do. There's things done now that are miraculous that couldn't even be thought of then. I wish I had the education and the technique and the equipment that they have now. We had uh, first aid kits, oxygen. We had a type of splint so when you had a fracture, you could immobilize the area so it wouldn't shift in the ambulance. But as far as having an advanced life support system on board that gives EKGs and all sorts of things, those were way, way in the future. Absolutely. It's just wonderful what can be done now. Wonderful. That was longtime funeral director and third-generation Vero Beach native Charles Gifford. I'm Janie Gould. This is Florida Frontiers. At various points over the past 500 years, the French, the English, and of course the Spanish have claimed control of Florida. Bill Dudley explores what might have happened had one of these European nations retained control of this peninsula. Everything he saw, he loved. 
He praised the land as the fairest, fruitfulest, and pleasantest of all the world, and he called the natives that he found mighty, fair, and as well-shapen in proportion of body as any people in all the world. Morris O'Sullivan is professor of literature at Central Florida's Rollins College. He's quoting from the leader of one of the earliest European colonial expeditions to Florida, not Spanish conquistadors, but French Huguenots under Captain Jean Rabot in 1562. Full of admiration for the land and its people, Rabot and his successors pioneered good relations with the area's Timucua Indians. Although there were problems, the French colony near present-day Jacksonville might have succeeded had not Spain learned of its existence. The Spanish decided that it would be a bad idea to allow their enemies, the French, to have a colony that was right on the edge of the Gulf Stream. They wanted to protect their merchant ships moving back and forth from the New World to the Old. And so they sent over a man named Menendez, who established a base in what is now St. Augustine, and he went with the express purpose of exterminating the French. In 1565, the colony and most of its people were wiped out by Menendez and his troops, ushering in two centuries of Spanish rule. What would Florida have been like had the Spanish not come? O'Sullivan believes that Franco-Florida might have been a very different territory under Rabot and his ilk. Had the French remained, I think we would have seen far more integration of the Europeans and the natives. He would have created bonds with them. He would have created alliances based on the respect that he had that were very different from what eventually happened. We would have seen a far more harmonious expansion of Florida into the kind of vision of a new paradise that Rabot had originally brought over. Fast forward now to the end of that century, to the years following England's defeat of the Spanish Armada, an ongoing diplomatic relationship between Queen Elizabeth I of England and Sultan Ahmed al-Masur of Morocco gives rise to a letter dated 1603, in which the Sultan proposes a joint expedition against their common enemy, the Spanish. What he wanted to do was use England's dominant fleet and seize St. Augustine and all the other Spanish possessions in the New World so that they would control the Gulf Stream and they would be able to resettle the New World with Arab and African troops. His goal was an Anglo-Islamic community in the New World supported by the English fleet. He thought that the population should be based on his troops because, as he wrote, those of your country do not find themselves fit to endure the extremity of heat there, where our men endured very well. Would the Sultan's plan have worked? Given the way the British ships had handled the Armada, and given what really was an endless supply of troops from Africa, and the historical animosity of the Moroccans to the Spanish, they were highly motivated. It was a brilliant proposal, and it might have sparked extraordinary developments, except for the fact that both he and Queen Elizabeth died in 1603. So there was no one to pick it up. La Florida stayed a Spanish possession for the next two centuries until becoming a territory of the United States in 1821. 
But what if, for some reason, Spain had retained ownership? University of South Florida historian Phil Levy says that by then, southern slaves were already escaping to settle in what were called maroon communities in thinly populated Spanish Florida. If, if Spain actually stays, it's easy to imagine the growth of these communities into something extremely viable and large and much more Latin American than anything you have going on in the United States. If that were to happen, it raises all kinds of interesting questions about the future of slavery. Perhaps there would have been revolts and disturbances like what had happened in the Caribbean basin even leading to the destabilization of American slavery itself. Now what happens if, if just south of Georgia you have this line and slaves go across that line and they enter a world in which their possibilities are, are, are much less constrained than they are in the United States? It, that's on the border. That's this constant form of slave revolt. And it's, you, know, you, could, you could really just imagine how, as happens in places like Brazil and in the Caribbean, you know, where you'd get, island, you'd get you know, these, uh, these armies, effectively, you know, armies of, of, of former slaves and children of former slaves who raid plantations. I mean, you can easily envision the state of warfare sort of existing on the southern border because you have this constant tension of slaves sort of trickling down into these, into these communities. Visions of a Florida that might have been from historian Phil Levy and literary scholar Morris O'Sullivan. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.